This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Protecting our children's innocence requires us to oppose leftist ideologues. Despite their protest to the contrary, there could be a little doubt that leftists are targeting America's children. The evidence is all around us, and the list of offenses against childhood innocence is too long to list here. This episode of the Return to Order Moment focuses on the ways that Christian parents, grandparents, and others should react to the leftist outrageous behavior. We begin with an essay by longtime TFP supporter Mr. Francis Sabodnik. Its main point is found in its title, Defending Childhood Innocence is a Parent's Duty. One of the most sacred duties of parents is to preserve, foster, and protect their children's innocence. The devil constantly invents ways to attack God, especially targeting those with immortal souls. Harming those souls is especially tragic since they are meant for heaven. If they succumb to the devil's wiles, they risk being lost for all eternity. Thus, society is the stage for a great battle for souls. People of goodwill can assist their neighbors in achieving eternal salvation. Others who, through their own fault, reject God and His law, can make the salvation of others more difficult by promoting doctrinal and moral corruption. The front line of the cultural battlefield for souls has moved to young children. No longer content with victimizing youth, many now seek to corrupt and disfigure childhood innocence. All children are born with innocence, by which they naturally seek God and all that is good, true, and beautiful. The baptized child is especially attracted by grace and divine goodness. The modern world presents many dangers to this innocence. A hypersexualized and agitated culture encourages the misuse of the reason, will, and sensibilities. Young children also suffer the evil influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The bad examples of parents, siblings, relatives, superiors, teachers, pseudo-elites, and others play a major role in corruption. One of the most sacred duties of parents is to preserve, foster, and protect their children's innocence. A child with innocence seeks perfection— and sees the world with a clear, untarnished vision of wonder and excellence. With God's grace, they can successfully combat temptation and sin. Today's culture of death uses public institutions to corrupt and destroy childhood innocence. Many local public and school libraries contain books that promote pornography, homosexuality, and transgenderism. Many parents would be shocked at the titles that may well be on the shelves at their local libraries, regardless of the size of the population and the beliefs of their communities. Exposure to such books seeks to destroy God's image in the soul and lead to mortal vice with its eternal consequences. What are some titles that can be found on some, perhaps most, library bookshelves? Here are a few. All Boys Aren't Blue 
Two boys kissing. Annie on my mind. Hero. Rainbow boy. The God Box. Parents should see if any of these books are on the shelves of their local public and school libraries. What can you do to stop this outrage? First, protect your children's innocence by carefully monitoring your local libraries. If your child attends a public or even a private school, make sure the library knows that your children are not allowed to have access to these books. If possible, homeschool your children or send them to a private school that promotes and defends purity. Don't trust the public library to protect your children. Even if you have submitted books you forbid your child to view or check out, those who might corrupt your children will find ways around the rules. It will require constant vigilance on your part. Make sure the promoters of unnatural vice do not do more to corrupt your children than you do to protect them. Second, Contact those in authority, such as those on library boards, school boards, or city councils. Seek out county commissioners, governors, attorneys general, and state legislators. Demand the enforcement of obscenity laws and the removal of these books. You might be surprised that many states have good laws against obscenity. Sadly, they are usually not enforced. Thirdly, pray, especially in the public square. Hold a public square rosary rally of reparation and protest outside locations where these books are kept. Invite others to join you. Your public rally will apply the pressure of public opinion on these institutions, alert others of the moral dangers in the library, and more importantly, attract the blessings of God. Childhood innocence is too precious to go undefended. Innocent children grow up to become fervent Catholics and morally responsible citizens. Do your part to protect this innocence. Sometimes, the left likes to pretend that their opponents deliberately blow their actions and words out of proportion. They try to wrap the mantles of free speech and self-expression over their shoulders and moan that they are misunderstood. On the contrary, the outrageous conduct of the left towards America's children is not a mistake. It is part of a pattern developed over centuries. Mr. Edward Benson fits the left's current actions into a centuries-old pattern in his essay, How Neo-Paganism Enters Our Culture with the Idea of Child Sacrifice. Ancient pagan practices like child sacrifice are returning to use. In its May 2023 issue, the usually political magazine Commentary published an extensive essay, The Return of Paganism. The article's main point was that ancient pagan practices are returning to use and are embedded in many modern movements. The article opened with an account of the so-called transgender killer who murdered three children and three adults in a Tennessee school on March 27, 2023. The author, Leo Leibovitz, 
sees a potent element of paganism in this act and its coverage in the mainstream media. The willingness to sacrifice children. Quote, Children were the ultimate offering to the gods. Proof that the pagan believer was so certain in his belief that he would offer up his own offspring to show the gods the strength of his faith. Unquote. Mr. Leibovitz seems an unusual candidate to write seriously about paganism. He has a Ph.D. from Columbia University and has written for the notoriously leftist The Nation and The New Republic. He writes a column for the Catholic-friendly journal First Things. The school shooting in Memphis also seems an unusual one in which to see pagan overtones. That event appears to be thoroughly modern. The word transgender was rarely heard until recent years, and until very recently, its antecedents were treated as mental disorders. Never before were these two elements merged into a single atrocity. Although paganism is often ignored, it is growing. About 8,000 Americans practiced it in 1990. That number grew to 340,000 by 2008. Today, an estimated 1.5 million adherents are, quote, professing an array of pagan persuasions from Wicca to the Viking lore, making paganism one of the nation's fastest-growing persuasions, unquote. Mr. Leibovitz also provided a key to this growing popularity, quote, Paganism may be distilled to the following principle. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Unquote. That explanation evokes the 60s catchphrases, It is forbidden to forbid, and do your own thing. Nonetheless, if the commentary article had a weakness, it was in spending too little space describing what paganism was, or is. While the article did not ignore this aspect totally, it understandably focused on child sacrifice. However, a more comprehensive look at the definition of paganism and its practices makes the connections more understandable. The Catholic Encyclopedia both defines and provides a more specific depiction of paganism. Quote, Paganism, in the broadest sense, includes all religions other than the true one revealed by God and, in a narrower sense, all except Christianity, Judaism, and Mohammedanism. The term is also used as the equivalent of polytheism. Quote, it is derived from the Latin pagus, whence pagani, i.e. those who live in the country, a name given to the country folk who remained heathen after the cities had become Christian. Unquote. Certain beliefs connect those rural Romans with the modern-day urban pagans. The Catholic Encyclopedia describes several aspects of paganism, the first of which is totemism. This is the use of often distorted animal, human, or natural symbols to which believers attach significant meaning. An excellent example would be the rainbow a symbol used by the LGBT movement to represent its demands. 
There is no actual connection between homosexuality and the meteorological phenomenon. In this particular case, there is a double meaning insofar as the homosexuals distorted the sign that God used to tell Noah that he would never again flood the earth. Quote, And the bow shall be in the clouds, and I shall see it, and shall remember the everlasting covenant that was made between God and every living soul of all flesh which is upon the earth. And God said to Noah, This shall be the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh upon the earth. See Genesis chapter 9 verses 16 to 17. Another common belief in modern paganism is animism, attributing the characteristics of the human soul to animals, plants, and inanimate objects, like the sun and moon. Today, this is often a feature of many ecologists, who attribute spirits to trees, rivers, and certain rare plants. Much of the biodiversity movement is related to the idea that each plant species contributes something to the earth, even if that something is indefinable. The resurgence of Druidism in modern life is an outgrowth of the revived spirit of animism. Dualism is another aspect of ancient paganism that re-enters modern life and thought. It teaches that the mind and the body are only peripherally related, and that reason is inherently superior to the body. Therefore, the body must be despised, and the life of the mind be cherished. Such beliefs were typical of the Gnostics, who were unwilling to believe that our Lord could have taken an actual human form. Today, It is found in many pagan practices derived from Buddhism and Hinduism, which have entered modern life through New Age teachings and yoga. As mentioned, much of the commentary article focused on child sacrifice. Unfortunately, the commentary article all but omitted the most common form of child sacrifice in the world today, procured abortion. Like those ancients who threw their newborns into volcanoes to appease their spirits, far too many modern people discard their unborn children in futile attempts to improve their own lives. At the same time, the article does provide other pertinent examples of child sacrifice. How, it asks, does one explain the COVID-related school closures? The fact that children were largely immune to COVID argues strongly that American schools should have remained open, as did those in most European countries. In an intensely unsettled time, the regular operation of schools would have done much to reassure our children that life would return to normal. However, the schools closed and stayed closed. Mr. Leibovitz lists the doleful consequences, quote, dramatic upticks in juvenile mental health crises, sharp declines in basic academic proficiency, and just about every other metric of human misery visited upon our children, unquote. 
The article also mentions the propensity of leftist parents and teachers to involve children in their political battles. This point is less solid, but there is evidence in its favor. Many leftist school curricula present social action by students as among their primary goals. Companies like Scholastic, the purveyors of innumerable elementary school book fairs, create and present whole strains of children's literature designed to venerate those who protest. One particularly egregious title is Take the Mic, Fictional Stories of Everyday Resistance, for ages 12 and up. Anyone who thinks adolescents need to learn to resist has never raised one. Indeed, ignoring procured abortion, this article makes several valid points. The spirit of modern paganism is very much alive today. Humanity's spiritual enemies are the same as they always were. Satan does not need to fabricate new tools when the old ones work so well. In too many cases, the front line for these ideological battles is the local public library. Mr. John Horvat explains the way that this common public institution became a center for leftist indoctrination in his essay, How Libraries Came to Be Sanctuaries for Sin. Libraries have become the latest battlefield in the culture war. Once a staid and neutral space inside the community, the library has become the latest battlefield in the culture war. On one side, concerned parents are horrified by pro-LGBTQ children's books found on library shelves. Conversely, Rabid liberals denounce the so-called bannings of these often pornographic books as violating reader rights. The clash between the two is becoming ever more intense. The liberal media try to reduce the database to a narrative that portrays poor parents as backward book banners who keep vital information away from children. However, Parents are not preventing books from coming into the libraries. They are trying to get them out. No one seems to be asking how such a vast number of these books found their way into the library mainstream in the first place. This question should be at the center of the controversy. The answer is simple. These books are in the libraries because activists put them there. The infiltration of literature into libraries started in the 70s. Activists in the library field gradually introduced LGBTQ-themed books into school and public libraries without permission, unannounced, and unseen. They imposed their agenda upon their communities on a scale that is only now coming into light. Over the past two years, there have been 1,600 challenges to books already in libraries. There is no need to contrive a conspiracy theory to make these affirmations. Liberals and librarians themselves tell the story. The liberal education site, The 74, showed this step-by-step -step process in an article titled how libraries came to be sanctuaries for LGBT kids. 
The report shows how a steady stream of often sexual explicit materials is directed to librarians sympathetic to the cause who fast-track them to the shelves. Libraries are sanctuaries for so-called LGBT kids on purpose. Not even the most creative conspiracy theorists could imagine the radical program that these librarians have put together to create these sanctuaries. The 74 story explains how the move to mainstream LGBTQ materials began in the 70s in the aftermath of the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York City. A new homosexual activism invaded all areas of the nation's cultural life. In 1971, the American Library Association formed its Task Force on Gay Liberation to provide a public space for the homosexual cause. The association relied upon activists like Michael McConnell, a homosexual librarian specializing in curating LGBTQ books for library collections. His so-called marriage is the subject of a 2021 children's book titled Two Grooms on a Cake, the story of America's first gay wedding, which is the target of parents' complaints since it clearly imposes an LGBTQ theme and targets children. Early activists like McConnell lobbied publishers to target libraries with queer-friendly books. They arranged regular training for K-12 school librarians on how to encourage LGBTQ-confused students. One set of skits taught reference desk staff how to deal with fearful patrons who were embarrassed to ask for these highly sexualized materials. Librarians were shown how to display these materials, mixing them with other causes to minimize controversy. Gradually, Librarians learned how to turn the public library from a haven of learning to a sanctuary of so-called safety and privacy. Another influential activist of the task force was the late Barbara Giddings, a lesbian librarian from the early days of the struggle. She openly tells of her efforts to change the library culture in her book, Gays in Library Land, the Gay and Lesbian Task Force of the American Library Association, the first 16 years. The result of all these gradual efforts is that LGBTQ-related materials are now plentiful and available for all library audiences, whether adult, student, or children. The 60s-sounding Task Force on Gay Liberation has morphed into a woke rainbow roundtable. It focuses on screening LGBTQ-themed books to see which ones get shelved. It also gives awards to books that make the prize winners more attractive to librarians. In 2018, the American Association of School Librarians published Defending Intellectual Freedom, LGBTQ Plus Materials in School Libraries, which teaches staff how to explain and defend these materials smuggled into libraries. In addition, libraries do not need to buy the books. 
an organization called GLSEN offers so-called rainbow libraries consisting of boxed 10-book sets of age-appropriate books delivered to librarians with posters and other classroom resources. The box sets are now in 1,800 schools in 28 states. The 74 article notes that GLSEN plans to be in 3,000 schools by the end of the year. In other words, the laborious attempts to get these materials out of the library will be in vain unless parents can turn off the spigot spewing forth these often graphic publications free of charge thanks to pro-LGBTQ activists who make no secret of their goals. The LGBTQ Library Network frames the debate as a child health issue. Its activists claim that the library is often the only safe space where inquiring youth can discover their sexuality. Without these resources, young people can despair and lives will be lost. Not having these materials, they argue, will create a non-welcoming and hostile environment for the LGBTQ-confused student. In an Internet age where everything is available online, these claims hold no water. Furthermore, there is no proof that lives will be lost. What is known is that the content of so many of these books is so indecent that it cannot be described in polite society. The effort to turn libraries into promotion centers for these obscene materials is to validate the LGBTQ lifestyle in the minds of youth. The goal is to tear down some of the last barriers of modesty and decency that defend childhood innocence. Under the false banner of health care, Children will be exposed to pornographic materials forbidden by law. This is child abuse to the highest degree. The debate needs to be reframed into a moral one. It is wrong to subject anyone, especially children, to pornographic portrayals of unnatural vice. When prominently displayed, as in June, All these libraries are now turned into so-called sanctuaries of sin. In the effort to create so-called safe spaces for LGBTQ-confused children, activist librarians have turned them into unsafe spaces for countless Christian and Catholic children who wish to avoid occasions of sin vital to their salvation. Parents are the guardians of their children before God and the nation. They have the duty to keep the children and themselves away from these materials that are so filthy that indignant parents who attempt to read them at school board meetings are ordered to stop in the name of decency. The 74 article and others show that the library controversy is not the product of paranoid parents trying to prevent books from libraries. 
This is a brutal culture war, the product of a calculated and deliberate process of placing these books in libraries over decades. It is not enough that books be removed. The networks supplying steady streams of filth into America's libraries must be stopped. The nature of this culture war calls for ensuring the activists and library associations no longer work contrary to parents and the community. Libraries should not be unsafe, hostile places where sin and vice are celebrated. Indeed, this struggle is much bigger than library shelves. The LGBTQ themes now aggressively appear in beer ads, department stores, and baseball games. Everywhere it forces itself upon the public square. The culture war cannot be ignored. Everyone has to take a stand. This concludes, Protecting Our Children's Innocence Requires Us to Oppose Leftist Ideologues. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.